Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Ben Shapira to discuss the future of technology in financial services. Ben is a digital strategist and UX specialist turned tech entrepreneur. He is the founder and chief product officer of Australian fintech startup Dinero, as well as being a lecturer in the Master of Media and Communications program at Swinburne University. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Despite its conservative reputation, the financial services industry has always been a big adopter of cutting-edge technology. I started my own career working in financial services because it was one of the biggest employers of people with technology and data-related skills. And prior to DJ Patil declaring data science to be the sexiest job of the 21st century, becoming a quantitative analyst for a big investment bank was what every ambitious data nerd seemingly aspired to be. But what does the future look like with regard to the use of tech in the financial services industry? I mean, it's a fairly open question, which I think is is really nice because it if you look historically, banks have been quick to adopt technologies that would streamline their their services and increase their bottom lines. So that would be stuff like ATMs, reduce the number of bank branches, automation as much as possible of digital lending. The the interesting part of technology implementation now is open banking, which has been a global initiative for the last, say, seven to eight years. In large part, Australia has been a little bit late to the party, but not in so far as a lack of skill set. It's largely been due to sort of a, a pragmatism of seeing everyone else attempt it first and seeing where the problems are and seeing, not to say that we haven't had our own, but to, to sort of assess uh, how open banking is being implemented and how it can best serve the Australian public. For us, it's an opportunity for consumers to have significantly more control over their financial well-being, who has access to their financial data, to be able to share their financial information either on an ongoing basis or on a single one-time use scenario, like applying for a credit card, and allows them to really be the gatekeepers of their own technology, their own their own data. It's in large part democratizing the financial data that a consumer has and allowing, allowing them to leverage it to the maximum capability for their own benefit in the long term. That's the principle that Dinero's built on, isn't it? Yes. So Dinero came about in large part because I was applying for a home loan. I've been living in Australia for, at the time, approximately 14 years, and I wanted to buy a home and I'd saved up my deposit. I didn't really know who to talk to in Canada, which is where I'm from and actually where I'm speaking to you from now. The broker market is is very, very small, but in, in Australia, the broker market represents about 70% of all loan originations for home loans. So I didn't really know who to talk to. I didn't know what I could borrow, what kind of rules I had to follow. So I found a broker in my neighborhood and I went to go and talk to them. And I went through the process of going through the pre-approval like most Australians go through. At the same time, I was going to try and find a home. Well, every 30 days, you have to resupply your information because your pre-approval only lasts for 30 days. So it was a very, very frustrating experience. 
having to manually download all of my data from a variety of different sources, collate it, send it to my broker. And then, you know, every 30 days having to go through that same process again until I potentially find a property. I've been in the digital industry for 30 years doing building products for other businesses. So I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And open banking really is really at the forefront of, of, of our capabilities to do that. We can aggregate all financial data into a single source, allow you to find a broker or a representative, either a financial advisor within the app to share your financial data on an ongoing basis, set financial goals for yourself. You get a really good solid understanding over what your net worth is, and you can share that data with a financial professional. Where we've chosen to be fairly pragmatic, though, is that we don't allow any transactions in our app and everything is fully encrypted. So we we wanted to find a really interesting balance between facilitating communication, creating that engagement between consumers and professionals, but also being very, very mindful of consumer data and consumer privacy. So we, we, we are doing our best to sort of straddle that line of maintaining security and privacy while enabling the consumer to choose to whom that they're sharing their financial data with. I'd like to keep going and talking about tech in the financial industry a bit more later, but one thing I'm interested in is your own background because I've read your LinkedIn profile. You have an incredibly impressive background in the advertising and marketing industry with decades of work experience, you teach in that industry. Was that experience with applying for that loan the first time when you thought, hey, it might be a good idea to work in the financial industry? Uh, that's a good question. I've I've worked with financial financial businesses in the past, but when you're working for an agency, you are largely taking what I would call a superficial understanding of your customer. In large part, you're focused primarily on understanding their product or service insofar as you will need to sell that product or services on their behalf across social media, other digital platforms, Google AdWords, or even through traditional sources like billboards. In a product development perspective, it's a little bit different because you have to take a more in-depth understanding over their business. When I stopped uh, working for the agencies, uh, my last full-time role was uh, head of digital for Clemenger BBDO uh, in Melbourne. And I started consulting for, for Repco. And it was a five-year stint working with them to help build their consumer-facing website. So I, in large part, did a lot of the master design work and usability work, worked with their third-party providers, their, their coders, their SEO and SEM providers, and worked with the team to sort of keep them uh, keep them on track and keep them you know, applying best practice. I think it was that experience in going from an ad agency side to a, a product side that really gave me an appreciation for how much in-depth you really have to understand an industry before you can really start building something for yourself. Insofar as Dinero is concerned, it took me a year and a half of research to really assess the viability of the idea that I had. And that included speaking to over 350 consumers, speaking to dozens of brokers and asking them you know, question after question after question to really understand whether what I was experiencing was just for me or whether it was a, an institutional problem, something that would be ubiquitous for everybody across the country that I could then build a business around. With regard to actually getting the technology capabilities, was that challenging for you? Very, 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's multiple vendors who can supply financial data. There's also limitations on what they can provide. So it's it's not really relying on, on a single data source, but multiple data sources to give the consumer and the broker everything they need. Currently, we have four different APIs that we connect with. We're about to implement additional ones for version two of our software. But it's also understanding what kind of data you're going to get, how in-depth and how correct the data is going to be, how many different vendors you're going to be able to access. We've chosen to partner with a data provider called Yodli. They're the largest and most respected data provider in the world. We've done that in, in part because they are the largest. They give us the opportunity to expand globally should we want to in the future, but they also offer us the, the largest number of connections. So we we can connect to over 330 different financial institutions. In understanding your customer base, you obviously went out and spoke to customers and brokers. How did you gain that understanding that you should go and subscribe to some sort of API for data? As part of my role in the UX space, we do a lot of research. So typically when we're building or designing something, we build in what are called wireframes. They're design agnostic box set diagrams. And we we build prototypes of the functionality that we're trying to create. Uh, we leave it as design agnostic so that people can focus on a specific task. And, and we invite people into rooms we record them, both the audio and the video, so we can see what they're engaging with. We can also see their faces and we listen to their audio. And typically what we do is we just assign them a task and we say, find a product of this type, add it to your shopping cart and check out. And then we ask them to describe their experience as they're going through that process. So that's how UX typically works from say an e-commerce website for what we had to do for Repco. In my case, I was asking them those same sort of questions, but asking them to describe their experiences in applying for a home loan. Did you know who to speak? Like, how did you find someone to speak to? What was the process in your application? How many different pieces of software did you have to connect with? How many different bank accounts do you have? How many different apps on your phone do you have for financial services? How long did it take for you to find your home? How many times did you have to reapply for your pre-approval? Questions like that, that really helped me form a broader understanding over whether or not these people had the same experience that I had. And what I noticed was that there were really three different types of customers that I was dealing with. First-time homebuyers, who in large part were dealing with what I was dealing with. A lack of education, a lack of knowledge, a lack of familiarity with the systems and services that they were engaging with. And then they were existing homeowners who were either looking to upsize or downsize or to refinance their loans, who had their own issues around having to re-engage with a broker. And then the third were investors. So people who already owned property, who were constantly engaging with their brokers and needed a better way to transact. So all three of those provided a different perspective on the different features and capabilities that we wanted with the app. And on the flip side, asking those same sorts of questions to the brokers about how they engage with consumers, how they generate leads, what happens during the nurturing process of acquiring a customer to converting them, but also uh, once a customer becomes a customer, how often do you engage with them? How do you leverage the portfolio that they've developed to help them expand and create more value, what 
we call in the, in the market, in the marketing side of things, the customer lifetime value. How do you maximize the value of every customer, not just from your own commissions, but also helping them create a more diverse portfolio? All of this contributes to how we've taken a view on building our product. And I've been really lucky in the fact that I have, I belong to an entrepreneurial group called Cub, and I've had some fantastic connections with members there. And they've, in large part, given me hours and hours and hours of time to help me qualify that what I went through was was correct in the end to, to quantify the number of their customers that would want this particular piece of software and how best to sell it. So not to consumers, but through the brokers and through the aggregators, the software software companies that brokers use to lodge their applications, taking a top-down approach. All of that really helped me in understanding how to build this particular product. With all those, I think you said 350 consumers that you interviewed, plus I forget how many brokers it was. Were all those people who were connected to your network in some way, or did you have to go out and find people who weren't connected to your network through, I don't know, advertising for people who'd be willing to be interviewed? Yeah. So about a third of them were my own network. The other two thirds, there's you know platforms on the internet where UX research is conducted and you pay people for those interviews. And depending on the, the complexity of the interviews, you pay them different amounts. So I conducted these interviews and mostly over type form. So, you know, the, it's like a questionnaire software. And once I got the feedback back, then I would take samples out of those. So I would take, you know, random samples of different age groups, different ethnicities, different genders, different geographic locations, different income levels. So I, I try to get a really good snapshot of the people who are answering the questionnaire. And then I would do Zoom interviews with them. That's really good. So it sounds like you were able to take a lot of the skills that you'd learned from your background in advertising and marketing and apply them to the tech startup industry. Yes. Uh, in large part, this is, and this is actually no different than being a social media analyst, which is part of what I teach at Swinburne. It's really being able to understand who your core audience is, being able to create personas, so stories about who these people really are going beyond traditional demographic breakdowns, different, different. so the historical side of things of, of purely gender, age, income, and really understand what makes them tick. Giving them a story, giving them a name, putting a picture to that profile, understanding their feelings about topics that don't necessarily relate to your particular agenda, but can help you formulate a better understanding of who these people are. What are their politics? How do they feel about health and well-being? Do they buy new or do they DIY? Are they more into technology or are they more analog? Like understanding who these people are can help you understand the likelihood, the propensity for them to use your software down the road. Are there any other skills that you learned in your career in advertising and marketing that you're now putting to work in your new career as a fintech startup founder? Yes, absolutely. So being a UX designer and a graphic designer, which I have been since 1996, I am the, the chief creative for everything that is Dinero. So I've designed and built the website. I've designed the app interface, the portal interface. I've been lucky to have a really good set of people to do the build for me. We now have our own team. The, our first build was largely offshored. 
but I designed it myself. And even with all of my experience, it took 43 iterations of the, of the design to get it right for the first version of the app. And the key learnings that I learned from that process has now helped me design and build for version two, which was currently in, in development as we speak. Do you write computer code? I write some, but very little. I write uh, HTML and CSS. So basically, I can design and build a website for you. I could, you know, build you. I could integrate, you know, a static website that I could build with, say, WordPress. But I don't write JavaScript. I don't write any code. Our platform is built on React and React Native. I certainly don't write any of that. I would very much prefer to hire specialists, especially for you know for privacy and security purposes, than to rely on my own skill set for that. I prefer focusing on the creative when it comes to to anything in the digital space. From the point of view of someone who has worked as extensively in advertising and marketing as you have, is there any advice that you would give to data scientists who are looking to market their work to clients or senior managers or just to build their personal brand in general? Yeah, look, the data analysts in the advertising space are in very high demand in a number of different roles. So in the social media space specifically, if you're going to be talking about behavioral analytics that helps you when it comes to targeting, lead generation, conversion rate optimization, all of those skills are really quite in handy. Um, if you're going to work for a media agency, a media buying agency, for example, like say, for example, like Hatched Media or None Media, they're really looking for data scientists who once again can help them better understand who their audiences are so they can use that from an omni-channel perspective to help develop the purchase criteria, the purchase plan for media spend. That might be a mix of online, offline media spend, you know, tram wraps, billboards, digital displays, as well as online media. And then I think you also have a huge number of corporations who are also looking for data specialists in their marketing teams, in their customer service teams, to really help them build a better mousetrap. You know, they're they're really trying to understand who their customers really are. And Australia is really great at building some fantastic products and services, but we do take our time when it comes to really truly understanding who our customers are. So we are slow to to launch, but what we do launch tends to be really high quality products and services. Do you incorporate data analytics or data science into Dinero? We do. So it will scale up over time. What we're doing right now is looking at uh, consumer purchase, uh, sorry, consumer interaction with our app to understand the various feature sets that we have and understanding their their relative value. We are also looking at the same from a broker's perspective, and we do interviews with both consumers and brokers on a regular basis to ask them you know, what they like, what they would like to see. We are quite transparent with our existing customers over what our feature backlog is so they can help inform what comes next and how we build that out. Uh, Some of them, we actually do UX interviews with some of our existing customers and we actually engage with them and say, you're going to see what's going to come next. We want you to help us make it better or even to help us break it so we can try and make it better. So that's that's sort of where we are right now. But as we progress over the next couple of years, the financial data that we're collecting will help us really understand consumer purchase behavior. And that has any number of applications. 
it has to be anonymized. So by law, we have to remove any unique consumer identifying information, but we can take financial data in aggregate and help us better understand consumer purchase behavior, the likelihood that someone is at a specific stage in their life and are likely to need various products and services. So I'll give you an example. Facebook has determined that newlyweds have an 80% chance of having a child within the first 12 months after they've been married. If we can determine based on purchase history, the likelihood that that particular couple is actively trying for a child, we can prepare that data in advance. What that means is that the constellation of businesses that would be interested in that financial data or in that persona would be insurance companies, companies who sell vehicles because the family is going to want to get a bigger, safer vehicle, likely are going to want to upsize their home. They're going to need not just you know more insurance for their home, but also life insurance for their family. They're companies that have very specific and very well thought out, well considered marketing plans like Baby Bunting, who has an eight-year marketing plan from conception to about eight years old, where they will change their marketing behavior based on the data they've already collected and they know about their own customer base. If they can have the data to know when someone is actively trying or has recently announced they're pregnant, that makes the data quite relevant to their marketing strategy. So in large part, what our future looks like is anonymized financial data in aggregate so we can extract consumer personas, let marketers, let brands use that data to find what are called lookalike audiences. So in the social media space and in the digital marketing space, we can upload data sets and those companies will then say, well, now that we have a framework of the type of customer you're looking for, we will then leverage that framework to find other consumers that fit that same criteria or large chunks of that criteria and help to drive more lead generation, more visits, more eyeballs to your advertising. And I take it the more detailed that profile is, the more useful it is. It is. And, and that really comes down to uh, sample size. So we know we need to make sure that we have a large enough sam- sample size that the data becomes statistically relevant. Otherwise, the data is just that. It's just data. At what point would you say that the sample size is big enough for it to become statistically relevant? For financial data, it's probably a lot smaller than in other types of data. Financial data and medical data statistically require fewer, like a smaller sample size. I would say, depending on who you're talking to, who you're selling that data to, the, the relevant size will differ. And you know you have to look at that also. Is do you partner with other with other providers to to provide a more complete view of that data? For example, you know our data talks about total spend, individual transactions, but what we don't see is what's inside your shopping basket. While someone like Flybys, for example, will see what's in your basket, but has a limited view over individual retailers. So you know combining our data might be an interesting prospect down the road as a sort of combined effort to provide a more comprehensive view of, of the, of the customer, a more holistic understanding over, you know, what they're spending in total versus what's in their individual shopping baskets in specific instances. Does combining data cause any conflicts with regard to data anonymization? Well, what we're looking for is patterns. 
So all the data that we would end up putting together would have to be anonymized in order to be leveraged. It's legally required that we have to pull all information that could identify a specific consumer. That information has to be removed. So, you know, name, phone number, email address, physical address, bank account numbers, all that sort of information has to be pulled from the data completely. And that's not just from us, but also prior to engaging with any third party partnership or or resale, we would have to do that as well. So otherwise you can re-identify data. So for example, if you had someone's banking transactions and you knew that they'd purchase, made a purchase for $10 at the local supermarket and you had their flybys data, you could theoretically match those two data sets based on that transaction at that date at that location. Do you have to remove stuff like that, which would allow you to connect the data sets? Well, so flybys would not include the flybys number. So that would have to be removed. But yes, I mean, what you're you're probably talking about is a lecture that I actually give my students every year to really to scare quite a bit of them about using systems like Alexa and Siri and those types of products is a lecture that I give on something called single source attribution data. Yeah, so single source attribution data is the ability to attribute multiple sources of data to a single source. And that single source is your mobile phone. If you consider the fact that your mobile phone has your SMS communication, your photos, your GPS tracking location, your search history, your bank information, your health information, your photos, along with you know all the other different app information you have, health data, social data, social triggers, you know we can get a really good understanding if we take that data and you you attribute a hundred thousand people you know to your data set, we can make a really good statistical correlation over who your friends are and your political leanings and your purchase history and your you know your uh, even like your holiday habits for example. So yes, you 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 know the more data you have, the more data sets you have from more the more sources you have, the data actually becomes can become more and more specific oddly enough. In our case, we have to be really pragmatic about delivering our data in a way where we limit that possibility. It would be more of an issue for companies like OMD, who is a, a media buyer, or a media seller, or big corporations that have purchased multiple different data sets. It would be more of an issue for them to be to be concerned about that eventuality. We're obviously selling our data. I mean, we haven't yet, but that data will be sold to a very limited number of partners. And obviously our data is one of those single sources. It's a bit of a minefield, but this is, I mean, this is once again, the reality of technology when it comes to the finance space. It's also the reality of technology when it comes to the healthcare space. It's also no different than talking about our artificial intelligence as it relates to finance or even just the general human equation. The reality is that the technology is itself quite benign. It's how we choose to use it. Dinero is very mindful about consumer privacy and consumer protection we do not have an AFSL, as in we don't have a financial license, we don't have a credit license. So we will never provide financial advice. We will never compare your credit cards and offer you a better, cheaper rate, right? We're not one of those comparison services. Our purpose for being is specifically to allow consumers to engage with financial professionals and get the absolute best advice they can get for their financial well-being. 
So we are a facilitator more than anything else. If we can serve that purpose to the best of our ability for the long term, and that won't just necessarily be in the lending space, but in multiple different financial verticals, then I think as a business, we've done our part. We want to make life better for the consumer, make life better for the financial professional so that all ships rise with the tide. When you were describing the use of data in Dinero and how other companies make use of data, I'm guessing that the sorts of techniques that would have been used in order to do that analysis would be just your standard data analytics, some machine learning. Are there any other key technologies that you imagine yourself incorporating into something like Dinero or some other financial services fintech companies incorporating into their products in the next three to five years? I would definitely say that artificial intelligence and the development of curated algorithms will will definitely be the future. The weighting of different aspects of purchase intent and purchase history can you know often give you different results. And machine learning can help you to a certain degree. AI will help you to a certain degree. Machine learning is in large part basically large data set decision engine, while artificial intelligence is sort of taking really trying to to take a contextual perspective over a consumer's purchase behavior. The problem with all of that is the lack of the human equation. With any of all with any of this technology, I don't personally see any point at which the technology will replace human contact. There will always be those who want just the cheapest product, the cheapest price, and there's a market for that absolutely, and I have no problem with that. But I think the larger proportion of the market want to find a way to get the most out of their dollar that they can, to have the largest, more most diverse portfolio they can have when they retire, and that having technology as a backbone to facilitate that and to allow them to more efficiently engage with financial professionals, people who will understand their context. How, when do you want to retire? How many kids are you going to have? Where do you want them to go to uni? Has something changed? Like, do you want to change your plans? That context requires human interaction. So I think there's always going to be a balance to be played, but technology will create more efficiencies, more economies of scale, which I think will only benefit the um, the market overall. A few minutes ago, you used the term curated algorithms. Could you explain what you mean by that? So the creation of algorithms where you are creating it specifically to look for a specific outcome, and also that the weighting of the different aspects of your algorithm will need to change over time to adjust and fine tune it. I'm using the term curated may not necessarily be a proper data science term. So you'll have to forgive me if that's the, if that's the case. But from our perspective, from a marketing perspective, that's the terminology that we use. We we curate algorithms to allow us to extract what we're looking for. So I'm still trying to get my head around it because I haven't come across the term curated algorithm before. So what's what sort of outcome would you be looking for in a marketing context? Okay, so if we are a company, let's say a, a new, a brand new company that is looking to understand market potential, right? There are a number of different algorithms that can help you do that. But if there are specific niches that you're trying to find, you will need to adapt that those sort of stereotypical algorithms to help you rebalance the different aspects of your algorithm, which are 
giving you your output. In other words, the weighting of your algorithm will need to change. So you have fine tuning the assumptions over time. Absolutely. Sometimes we have to do that earlier than than what we necessarily like. So that's what we call curation. Eventually that sort of mitigates itself as you have more and more data that tends to balance out with the fine tuning itself. How do you see technologies like generative AI impacting the financial services industry? I mean, I was saying before, the context of your customer is an ever-changing, ever-moving equation, part of the equation. And I don't think that artificial intelligence will solve for that, no matter how many questions that you teach it to ask. That being said, there are specific parts of the financial community that can really benefit from AI. So something like, there's another product in the market called Sherlock. They're uh, relatively new to the market. And what they do is they look for businesses who are, sorry, individuals who are more likely to, to leave a broker because they're looking for a cheaper price, right? They're looking, their they're, they're refinance is ready or they're paying too much and they're ripe for picking. There's another company called Stay or Go, which is a competitor of, of, of Sherlock, which does the same thing. So it's businesses like that that can leverage artificial intelligence to identify customers who are more prone to churn in a, in a broker's book and search for offers that are potentially better for them if their only concern is specifically the bottom line, the financial equation, and offer them those opportunities. I'm just imagining the how I would build something like this. So yeah, it's basically a churn model, then some sort of search model, and then... And then you would want to re-engage the broker if they would be willing to pay for it, or potentially you go direct to consumer. To go back to data security, we we're talking about anonymizing data in order to perform analysis before, but there's also the matter of data breaches. The more data a fi- financial services company collects, the greater the chance there is that there's going to be a data breach, you know, a la the recent Optus breach, the Medibank breach. Australia's had some really bad luck this year, I think. Yeah, I just got caught up in the most recent latitude one. Uh, the companies who are largely being targeted are ones that that have transactional capability. So they are the primary target. I'll tell you what we do to try and mitigate as much risk as possible. Um, and we are, as far as our insurance company is concerned, the lowest cybersecurity threat. It's not to say that we aren't a target potentially, but what we do is we take as much steps as we can in terms of security. As a matter of fact, we've just undergone a pen test. So it's a what's called a penetration test. It's a company that we've engaged to essentially trying to hack our app and they provide us with results. We remediate those results, get another test done to ensure that we've addressed those particular considerations. And as an output, we get certain different types of certifications. So the one that we're going for is called SOC 2, which is bank level security. So for us, we take a few a few different steps. One, we've chosen, we do not allow transactions in our app. So right then and there, many hackers will look at our data and say, well, it's not really worth as much to us because it's non-transactional. Second, we never store bank login details. When you connect your bank account to our app for the first time, you will use your bank supplied login details. We do not store them. What we get from our data partner is an alphanumeric key that identifies our app, your particular account within our app, and access to your financial data. 
And from there, it allows us to update our data every 24 hours, but it ensures that we are at no point reusing your bank login details. In fact, if you change your bank login details, you will need to re-log in to your bank account through our app to continue the engagement. We also encrypt our data in a different way. Our financial data is encrypted in a separate database to our customer, uh, to our consumer data. So anything that's identifiable to you as a consumer is in a separate database to your financial data. And it's only through the decryption within the core software of the app that the output comes to the API. If you try and steal that information, you're left with two databases that are separately encrypted without a key to decrypt them. So we try and add these sort of multi-layer approaches to things to ensure that at, at all times, we're taking the most pragmatic approach to, to data security. Do you think this sort of approach will be adopted by a lot of other financial services firms or fintech companies going forward? I certainly hope so. I will say the government is very stringent on their cybersecurity requirements, especially for open banking. And our data partners are also very stringent on their requirements. So we have to go through these pen tests to prove that our code is up to standard. It's not just our code, but our hosting infrastructure. So for example, no financial data ever leaves Australia. Our apps can only be downloaded in the Australian app store. So everything is geofenced to Australia to ensure that you know someone outside the country isn't trying to hack in and get gain access. But the, the government, the industry, as well as the fintech partners themselves are all you know, very well motivated to ensure that we are taking all of this you know, in stride, that you know, we understand that breaches are going to happen. They tend to happen to businesses that have uh, have spent a lot of time in business and are taking a little bit more of a lax perspective around security, potentially in favor of features or benefits. We will not be one of those companies. For us, it's really clear that trust is a primary key to any of this fintech future. If that trust is breached, we all are are struck down by it. So we're we all work together. I mean, all of all, most fintechs know each other. We all typically work out of a similar hub. Like we we've been working out of stone and chalk for the last little while, and it's nothing but fintechs. And we, you know, we all have to deal with these sorts of very similar problems. So we all learn from each other. We all take cues from each other, and in some cases, we actually work together. Well, I mean, the fact is, if one fintech gets breached, it causes it casts a shadow over all the others. So it's Absolutely. in everyone's best interests for you all to be safe. Absolutely. And, and look, we're dealing with, we're dealing in an industry where more than 95% of our consumers don't understand the technology that we're implementing. So it's in large part a trust issue. We need to provide as much assurance as a much proof to consumers that we are following, if not exceeding best practice for them to want to use our software and to continue to use our software. So it's incumbent on us to be as fully transparent as possible. Our pen test results, we will publish to the to the general public. And what's next for you and for Deniro? There's two aspects to our growth plans. Uh, one is geographic growth. And these, once again, will be geofenced by region. Obviously, New Zealand would be uh, our first sort of cab off the ranks. In large part, a lot of our partners that are here are also there as well. Canada, UK have very similar banking structures. So for us, those, the, those countries are very appealing to us. And then there's also the opportunity to work in multiple financial verticals. 
Currently, we're, we're working primarily with mortgage brokers and lenders, but we also had lots of interest from financial advisors. Um, we've had interest from business lending. We've had interest from, the, from insurance companies. We've had interest also from other financial markets who really just, they want that sort of, that, that, that means of communication with their consumers that they currently are not being offered by, their, by the software vendors in their, in their industry right now. So is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? I, mean, I think we've seen the growth of AI insofar as what we've been allowed to see. I mean, the reality is what we've seen is probably 5% of what's actually been designed and built. I think what we're going to see is a large-scale global race towards AI. And, you know, that can have really positive influence on, you know, any sorts of industries by, you know, allowing for rural communities to gain access to, you know, high-quality medical care, for example, to fully level the playing field when it comes to access to education, for example. Where we can also see problems is, you know, in our media industries, in our political political spheres by seeing a lot of AI being used for nefarious purposes. When it comes to specifically to the financial side of things, there are once again, positive and negatives. By having AI-driven services, we can see for efficient ability to say, for example, find a cheaper, better price, to find a product or service that meets your specific needs if you are so inclined and educated, to be able to provide those same services to people regardless of geography, regardless of income, and regardless of education. Where I see a problem in it is stuff like what we've seen over the last few years, for example, like robo-trading. So using AI to understand and preempt trading practices for stocks by consumers, because now we see consumer trading of stocks being an ever-increasing volume in the market but they can't trade at the same speed as, say, for example, you know, a Morgan Chase, for example. So AI playing a large part in that. AI may also be able to give us uh, better super results for our retirement savings. So there's a, there's a variety of different ways that can be really positive and really, really you know, problematic. We have to take a step back and look at AI to see what it can do and what it might do. I think we need to engage those who are highly educated in the space. We need to have much broader discussions, both within industry, with the general public, and through the government to understand exactly where our opportunities lie and where our potential risks might might be. And to create a framework, to create some, some fencing around the use of AI in specific circumstances. We do have to be mindful, though, that there are going to be other countries that don't have those fences, that don't have those barriers. Countries that will say, we don't care what the cost is, we always want to be number one. We will have to deal with that as well. But I think if we can look at, say, for example, how Australia navigated the financial crisis in 2008, in large part, that regulatory framework, that regulation of the banking industry is what saved Australia from the worst of the outcomes. I think we need to take the same sort of look at, at AI and say, how do we use it to our benefit uh, as a community to get the best results for all of us, but also where are risks and where do we need to protect ourselves so that we can be ready for what may come? Do you see any countries 
leading the way in regulating AI? I don't think there's any one particular country at the moment because it's so new. I know the U.S. has had discussions recently in open Senate hearings with industry specialists. I would say from a privacy perspective, Europe is far ahead of the curve of anybody else. The privacy regulatory systems that they have in place are quite stringent. But I would say that, that, that this whole AI thing is still so new to the public. The governments of the world have not had to deal with this in an open way so far. And now they're kind of being forced to. It's actually a good thing that, that the, the, you know, the covers are being lifted quickly. I, said, I suspect over the next 24 to 36 months, there's going to be a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, open discussions. And it'll be really interesting to see if the world can create an agreed framework like we have for, you know, for nuclear weapons or more biotechnology, like, you know, like human cloning, for example, or genetic research. If we can take those same sorts of cues as a global community and recognize its potential and its potential harm and create an agreed framework that we have with those types of technologies, I think we could actually look at AI as a positive overall influence than, than, than a negative one. And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? School will only teach you so much. And I don't mean that in a way that is disparaging on schools. Uh, obviously, I teach at Swinburne. Universities will, in large part, teach you the theory. Get your hands dirty. Do a lot of independent learning. Study on your own as well as in the classroom. But also, try and think outside the box, right? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the very people that you are trying to understand. It's through that process that you will be more effective, more efficient. Because data analytics is all about understanding context. That's what you're trying to understand. So put yourself in the shoes of those that you're trying to, to understand. For listeners who want to learn more about you and to learn more about De Niro, where can they go to get in contact? So uh, I'm happily will speak to anybody over LinkedIn. You know, my profile is open. Happily, if you want to come and uh, join my class at Swinburne, I'm sure the university would love that. Dinero, you know, you can find us online at dinero.app. And, you know, in, in general, I do lots of speaking engagements. I, I'm more than happy to talk to people on a variety of different issues. I'm kind of at the point in my life where I'm really keen on giving back. So I do guest lecture spots from time to time as well. Happy to speak to anybody on any topic that they like. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.